When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Rock's Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins, and I'm here with Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Mirison Bowie. Hello, Barney. And we are also here with this episode's very special guest, Mr. Midge Ewer. Hello, Midge. Hi, Barney. How are you? <laughs> really well. Lovely to see you. We're delighted and honored to have you on our little podcast to talk about key moments in your career. And not least your association with the New Romantic period, which is a, a scene celebrated in Dylan Jones's epic new oral history of the New Romantics, Sweet Dreams, for which you were interviewed at some length. There's great quotes in there. We're also going to pay tribute to departed guitar god Eddie Van Halen, plus we'll hear clips from a 1998 audio interview with Mariah Carey, and then we'll sift through the best new pieces in the Rocks Back Pages library. So to start, Midge, I mean, you've had a sort of splendidly convoluted career, taking in Slick, The Rich Kids, Thin Lizzy, Visage, Live Aid, and of course, Ultravox. Before we attempt to sort of follow you through that journey, where did you start in music? What are your kind of earliest, what is the earliest memory of like, I want to do this? Oh, it, uh, you know what? I, I don't. I don't have a moment. There was no kind of seismic shift when I I sat in front of, you know, a black and white television watching Top of the Pops, thinking this is for me. <laughs> I suppose, you know, I I could sing. Uh, yeah, I always had a voice, and that was free. You know, I, I I we didn't have any money. I was a, you know, I was born in a tenement slum in the outskirts of Glasgow. So, everything in my head was fantasy, and and music was part of it. Music took me you know, out of the reality I was in and into somewhere different, shinier, sparklier, something, you know, much more fun was going on inside my head than what was actually going on outside my head. So it was always for me. I could always sing before I I was allowed anywhere near a guitar. Tommy Steele, I I think I remember reading a, an interview with you where you talked about Tommy Steele I, and he was holding a guitar. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, the guitars fascinated me more than Tommy Steele, I think. But <laughs> the Saturday morning pictures, you know, the Saturday morning matinee, he used to go and do the ABC minors or whatever it was, and you would see some movie. And I remember seeing a thing called The Duke Wore Jeans starring Tommy Steele. And he had a guitar, and he was up on stage doing his bit, and he was just a bit geeky without it, and all of a sudden with the guitar, he was special. And that must have resonated somewhere. Maybe I thought that girls would talk to me if I had a guitar. So, yeah, isn't that what, what makes it, you know, the industry that we're all part of, something, you know, gleaming like a little jewel, something to reach for? So, yeah, Tommy Steele was the first thing, not necessarily music, but certainly his guitar. Well, that makes perfect sense. I'm, I mean, Mark is a guitarist, yep, and I'm sure he would agree that when he straps <laughs> on a guitar, he transformed instantly from geek to superhero. That, that didn't work, no. <laughs> I, that, that, that transformation never took place. I'm putting it down to the wrong guitar, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> 
I don't know. The guitar was working. It was the person operating it who wasn't ready to. I mean, Midge, you had star quality from the off. I mean, and I don't remember Slick that well, but it was quite clear to me that sort of coming after the Bay City Rollers, you had like a hundred times more charisma and talent than they did. I'm delighted that we got a, a great slick piece on Rock's Back Pages that Caroline Kuhn did. I mean, you had a, a number one hit with Forever and Ever, and that was an early experience of dealing with the London music business, wasn't it, for you? Because you drove all the way down from Glasgow with all your equipment to find out, they just sort of said in a rather curt way, we've already recorded the backing track. Well, yeah, you know, we, we, turned up at the, <laughs> we turned up at the studio with a three-ton truck uh, with all the equipment that we'd been using, you know, for you know, doing the Scottish circuit for the three or four years that we'd been doing that to find out that, the Bay City Rollers had recorded the backing track. Well, maybe not them, but the guys who recorded all their backing tracks had, <laughs> had been in and knocked off what sounded like a, a bad Bay City Rollers B-side, and that was Forever and Ever. And when I complained about it, the infamous Bill Martin took me out, and this is, I'm just a kid at this point, and he took me out into the middle of South Moulton Street in central London and proceeded to scream in my face, you know, about get up there and sing this bloody song and this effing this and effing that and get in there and do it. So I, I, I kind of did it, and that was my first experience of, of making a record. So suffice to say, when I got the phone call from them on a Tuesday morning or whatever it was telling me, you know, Forever and Ever was number one. It really did mean nothing to me. The line wasn't there yet, but <laughs> but the sentiment certainly was, you know. Extraordinary. Well, I mean, that's a, quite a traumatic experience to have at the hands of Bill Martin. I'm going to jump forward to a sort of extraordinary kind of thing that I kind of worked out but we mentioned caroline coon and she went up to see you guys play and you, i don't you're at number one at this point but she saw you playing glasgow to in front of three thousand screaming girls mm. and she writes this piece for melody maker and then i learned that subsequently she tipped off malcolm mclaren and bernie rhodes to you and suggested that they consider you for being the lead singer of the Sex Pistols. I mean, that seems like almost surreal, really. But I mean, and they were waiting around the corner in Glasgow. Had they come up to see Slick? No, I, I, that's the first what time. What were they doing in Glasgow? Well, I'll tell you. I think the Caroline Coon bit is absolutely true. She she kind of saw something in Slick that nobody else did. She saw that, you know, yeah, we were packaged as, as a teeny bop band and, of course, the, the song kind of forever painted you as that. You know, in our heads, we were, the, you know, the next Roxy Music, but without having written the songs. In everyone else's eyes, <laughs> we were the Bay City Rollers. That, that was it. But she saw something beyond that. So what happened was, I don't think, uh, that's the first I've heard that she may have spoken to McLaren or Bernie Rhodes about, about me. My meeting with them was, was completely accidental. I was stopped in the streets of Glasgow coming out a music shop, which may have given them a clue as to what I was, because of how I looked at the time. You know, the right. kind of James Dean quiff and the 
you know, the tight trousers and all of that stuff, which was kind of different from everyone else in, in Glasgow at the time. The guy who stopped me was Bernie Rhodes, who obviously I didn't know. I spoke to his mate round the corner in this beat-up old car, who was Malcolm McLaren, who proceeded to tell me about his involvement with the New York Dolls and his shop and Vivian Westwood and fashion and whatever, then went into the whole tirade about, you know, trying to put a new band together and then said, did I want to join the band? But he hadn't asked what I did. So I, I said no, you know. God knows what would have happened if he'd wanted me to be the drummer or something. You know, but but I, it I, it was just wrong. You know, he was he was putting something together to hang his clothes on, and I turned it down. And then weirdly, the Caroline Coon connection came in a little bit later with Glenn Matlock, okay, with the Rich Kids. So so that's a complete coincidence, really. It wasn't how I imagined it happened, which is which. But somewhere, I think Caroline Coon did recommend you to them. So it's so bizarre that that. that just total coincidence happened. You didn't end up in the Sex Pistols, obviously, um, but you did end up in the Rich Kids with an ex-Sex Pistol. So you experienced, you essentially moved to London. Out of the Rich Kids comes, essentially comes Visage, you and Rusty Egan, you know, you, you bought a synthesizer, didn't you? Yeah. And Rusty's playing like Kraftwerk and other like European disco records as a DJ. And so this thing called Visage comes together. And this is, this is really the sort of the dawn of kind of electronic pop. That... Bonnie, is there a question involved in this? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, well, just tell, tell us about, about that, you know, why you bought a synthesizer and, and what was happening kind of in terms of electronics in London at that moment? Well, there was nothing. I mean, if you, you're, you guys are old enough to remember the charts back then and, and it was very, you know, UK and American-centric. You know, we didn't hear songs from Europe or any music from Europe unless it was kind of Europop. You know, yeah, Kraftwerk had graced the charts a few years before with Autobahn, but then disappeared. So we didn't, we, you know, unless you were well-versed in kraut rock, you didn't really know what was going on yeah. outside of our territories. So in 70, 77, I moved down to London to join the Rich Kids, which was kind of wonderfully chaotic. It was great. You know, the evening I got there, we did three gigs. I learned three songs of the band's went out and opened up for the police in the Angel Islington. The support band didn't turn up, so we went up and played our three songs. Went to a warehouse party where there was Sid and Nancy and The Clash and Susie and the Banshees and Billy Idol and whatever. We played our three songs there. Then we went to Camden Palace and played our three songs there with the Boomtown Rats. It was, so it was baptism by fire. A year down the line, yeah, Rusty had been doing a bit of DJing in a little club called Billy's, which was the forerunner to the, the Blitz. So he was he was getting all this interesting stuff, you know, Noy and Can and Dusseldorf and Kraftwerk and, and pumping them through disco speakers, which had never been heard before. So it started this idea of wouldn't it be great having a you know our favourite musicians in a collective. I had bought a synthesizer in 78 with a view to bringing in this technology with traditional rock instrumentation. And Visage seemed like a great vehicle for me to start to learn more about production. That's all I really wanted to do. I wanted to write a bit more. I wanted to be in charge of the music. Maybe it was a backlash against what I'd been made do in Slick, but I wanted to control a scenario. So we put together 
three of the guys from the band magazine and Billy Curry from Ultravox, who was one of our favourite musicians, and Steve Strange. And we, we begged, borrowed and stole some studio time to put Visage together. And through the Visage project, which took almost a year to complete because magazine and Ultravox at the time were still touring. Even the rich kids were touring a little bit at the time. It was difficult to get us all in the one place at one time to make the album. And by the time the album was complete, Ultravox were dead and gone, and I joined the dead and gone band. <laughs> so we have this, the featured writer this week is Bessie Page, and we've got this great interview. Before Fade to Grey becomes a massive hit, there's an interview with Steve Strange. And, I mean, you talk in Dylan Jones's book about Steve really was, the importance of Steve was his role on the scene. Yeah. You know, he was like the gatekeeper at, at Blitz. What was it like being in the middle of this of this extraordinary flamboyant scene that had so much to do with fashion and this kind of in-crowd thing? I think the, the reason for all of, you know, my involvement with it was purely the music. You know, it was exciting, it was different. It felt as though... There was something new on the horizon. So I was there purely for the, the music side of it. The fashion side of it was just, you know, outrageous, which it should be. But, you know, you look back throughout history and, you know, music is associated with a particular fashion or a particular place. So, you know, Liverpool, Cavern, you know, Mersey Beat, you know, the, later on the Hacienda, Manchester, the whole, you know, Madchester thing. Did you feel at home in that? I, in that I felt slightly, slightly like a fish out of water. I, I, I'm mm-hmm. not, I'm not the outrageous type. I wasn't, I didn't, I never dressed in that way. I mean, we were. I think Ultravox were plunked in with the new romantic scene because of my association with Visage. The Visage side of it, I totally understood. The Ultravox bit, I didn't really get. I had always seen Ultravox more like a kind of art rock band, you know. So, but they were big by association. They were kind of dragged in, kicking and screaming with that. So yeah, I did feel a little bit uncomfortable with it because a lot of it was it was on the surface uh, there was nothing really below it steve was a lovely guy he couldn't sing but it was it was it was absolutely important because of his association with that and the look and the hairstylists and the makeup artists and all of the people who used to frequent the blitz you know all those all those arty guys you know it, it, he had that connection with them and i'm still a kid from Cambus lang you know, uh, so who, who wanted to, who wanted to twiddle some knobs in the in a you know in a nice sense <laughs> in a nice way. Um, I'm curious. <laughs> you talk about wanting to get at that point wanting to get more into production and buying first synthesizer and stuff. Was that a sort of conscious? This feels like the future, the sound of the future with synthesizers, or was it just like, oh, this is different, and therefore I want to try it. I think this was something else. This is, this is the first form of dance music I can think of that we were helping create that had nothing to do with jazz or blues or soul. This was coming from Europe. This was coming from industrial Dusseldorf. And you, know, you think, how does that work? And then in a weird way, it, kind of, it was like the, the tail wagging the dog. You know, what we were doing started to influence the house guys in Chicago who started using electronics to make dance music, but absolutely based in soul and jazz and blues and, and whatever, mm. but utilising the sounds that we were using to make you know, what we were doing. It didn't feel like this is the future and I'm chasing it. It felt like this is something that we're creating right now 
that it, you know involves something that's been around for a while, you know, and put the elements together, and bang, you've created something new, you know. Also, for the first time, synthesizers are becoming affordable. They've been very, yeah. very expensive instruments, yeah. right up to about the introduction of, like, the Roland Junos and so on and so forth, and suddenly you could afford to buy these things. Absolutely. Yeah. This, uh, there was a technological revolution going on alongside the musical one. You know, you couldn't do this stuff prior to, you know, a mini Moog up until yeah. you know, 1980 or something cost the price of a small house in Sheffield. You know, <laughs> but all of a sudden the Japanese manufacturers came out with, you know, Roland and Yamaha and whatever. Yeah. And you could buy a tape machine that you could record four tracks on. And yeah. in your bedroom, you could sit and do one finger note on your thing and do a bass part and then create a drum yeah. part. And, and you could do sound on sound and layer upon layer. And you listen to things like, you know, being boiled by, you know, early human league. And that was mm-hmm. that was exactly that. They made the whole they made the bass drum sound on a synthesizer and then they played a melody on the same synthesizer, you know. And there's a whole bunch of you discovering this at very much the same time. And Daniel Miller at Mute Records was working in a kind of in a very similar territory, culturally slightly different, not part of the sort of that sort of particular club scene. But it's exactly the same thing, isn't it? It's just yeah. these wonderful new toys that you could... Absolutely. The warm leatherette, you know, yeah. was an inspiration to us all. So, you know, it, it wasn't all about, you know, sucking your cheeks in and lifting your eyebrow and putting <laughs> on a bit of blusher. There was a lot of stuff going on, as you quite rightly pointed out, behind the scenes. You know, Daniel Miller was responsible for a huge yeah. seismic shift in, in that particular department. You know, That must have been an incredible year for you, or two. I mean, 80, 81 with, with Photogray and then, of course, Vienna with that extraordinary sounding intro. I mean, it's, it, it, it was a massive hit. I mean, uh, at the same time, you had this association with Phil Linnett and, and Thin Lizzy, which was like a very, very different... I mean, it was quite schizoid, wasn't it? <laughs> very, but the, 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 this is what I'm going to throw it back at you guys. You're the guys who categorised music, <laughs> not, not musicians, you know. Mm, you'd, you'd, mm. Find, you'd, read the, you'd read the Melody Maker or the NME or whatever and find out what you were, you know, and you were in, like, a library and you were on the shelf alongside... You know, whoever, you know, Roxy Music or, or David Bowie, or what, which is quite nice. But, you know, it, it, yeah, it, music's music. You know, I, I was, I'd known Phil Lennett for a long time. I'd, I'd seen early Thin Lizzy as a three-piece playing the Picasso Club in Glasgow when I was, you know, not old enough to get in the Picasso Club. So I, I was a bit of a fan of, of all genres of music. But I'd already joined Ultravox when I got that phone call, you know, asking me to go out and replace Gary Moore on their American tour. You know, I'd already... I was in the studio finishing off Visage. I'd joined Ultravox and we had started writing the Vienna album and nothing was going to entice me away from that. That was... You know, we had nothing. We had nothing. All we had was the ideas we had and, and maybe a little bit of potential. Everyone else had written it off. So I wasn't going to walk away from Ultravox to go and do something like Thin Lizzy. I, I wasn't a good enough guitar player to Yeah, I was going to, to ask. That, really? Yeah. What do you mean you were going to ask? <laughs> Cheeky bugger. <laughs> but you are a very good guitar player. I mean, you're, you're as much a guitar player as you're a keyboard player. You, you do all of these things. Well, I'm a guitar player first and foremost. I key, keyboards, I make them do what I need them to do, but I'm useless. I could, if somebody put a gun to my head and asked me to sit and play a tune on the piano, I'd, I'd, I'd be dead. It, w- it wouldn't work at all. But yeah, g- guitar's my thing. But for me, it was, it, I mean, what a joy to be able to, you know, dip into that 
the tail end of that American corporate rock thing in 1979 or whatever it was, 1980, and you know, be on stage with uh, you know Aerosmith and Santana and whatever, just to see it, just yeah. to experience it, knowing that all the time I was going back to my you know, twiddling knobs in the blitz. <laughs> I mean, there, there is a mention, you know, the unlikelihood of, of sort of you playing with Thin Lizzy is, is, is partly because of what was happening in the new romantic scene. And another of Betty Page's pieces is this kind of manifesto that she sort of concocted with Gary Kemp and Steve Dagger. And it's very much, it's not sort of anti-Thin Lizzy per se, but it's very much anti-rock. Uh, anti-music press. So I just wondered whether you you did feel a little... I mean, you said you felt a fish out of water, but did, did you feel like in any way with someone like Gary Kemp that you had to sort of observe certain rules in this, in this new scene? No, not at all. I didn't fit in anything, you know, and maybe that's partly to do with my, my weird, you know, colourful background, you know, having... A bit like a bit like the show bands in Ireland. You know, Scotland had uh, Scotland's licensing laws were run by the church, so we had no pub rock circuit. So I was brought up playing other people's music. So at the end of that period, you find yourself pretty versatile, being able to play a lot of different styles and a lot of different things. So I didn't really feel as though I was I was adhering to any you know, invisible rules that had been laid down by, you know, the new romantics. If reality be told, it's, you know, Spandau were a soul band, yeah. you know, who just donned a few outfits yeah. and bought a synthesizer. And that's absolutely fine, but but I don't think any of us adhered to that. We might have, you know, implied that, you know, the, the old brigade were dead and gone, which, exactly. which, I which mean, the I'm, punks I'm, did three years before. You know, it's the yeah. same thing. What, what so many artists do when they're coming up is try to define themselves as being against whatever happened before. When, in fact, if you talk to them as individuals, you'll find their records packed full of all these records that you're not meant to be listening to. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was shocked when I joined the Rich Kids and found out that the punks were big T-Rex fans or Bowie fans. Yes. And you think, Really? You know, but that's we all cut our teeth with, with something, you know. There's a very funny moment in this Bessie Page interview with with Gary and Steve Dagger, where Dagger says, "You know, in 15 years, everyone will look back on this. All the rock critics who are so hostile to us will look back, all dewy eyed, at the Blitz scene." And of course, that's exactly what happened. And and <laughs> and this book by Dylan, "Sweet Dreams: The Story of the New Romantics," is is about as dewy eyed. A retrospective as you could ask for, really. I, I always really like Derek Ridges, photographer, is he mm. sort of, he discovered the scene and he just started photographing it. That's how he got into being a, a pop photographer, was he just loved going to these clubs where these people were dressed so weirdly, you know, yeah. if at all, you know. I mean, yeah. it was, it was... <laughs> well, of course, Lee Bowery was, of course, the most extreme, wasn't it? I mean, at one end of the spectrum, you had people who just, who sort of looked a bit glamorous. At the other end of the spectrum, you had Lee Bowery, who really was completely outrageous. Yeah, I think I think they would have given license to be completely outrageous. You know, the, it was it was this funny little scene where the more ridiculous you were, you know, or however much you you know raided your granny's wardrobe or whatever to to put on an outfit, that's it, you were you were lauded for it. I, mean, I was there the night Bowie turned up, and and all of these you know these peacocks all just melted. They all just <laughs> they all just d disappeared because the the, yes. the king had arrived, and and you know so. 
It was just great. And of course, everybody becomes, in a sense, mainstream, don't they? And that's nowhere more obvious than with like Live Aid, the biggest sort of event in the history of, of pop music. And, and it all comes out of this little incestuous little scene in Covent Garden. And you and Geldof are, are at the controls. I mean, what are your... I mean, sorry to have to ask you, because you must have had to talk about Live Aid, Band Aid and Live Aid so many times. I mean, from this distance... What are your memories now? How does that sit with you, that recording and that event? The record sticks with me more than the concert because the concert just seemed, although it was it was over like a five or six hour period, the UK part of it, it just seemed to go by in a flash. You know, it was it was momentarily. But the record uh, took longer, uh, weirdly, because I was involved in it for a longer period. You know, the run-up to Live Aid took three months of meetings and, and sitting around a boardroom, and none of that is memorable at all. But the making of the record, I just built my studio. I started, you know, piecing this thing together, Geldof's idea and my idea, and started gluing it together in my studio. So I spent four days playing all the instruments on the on the track while Bob drummed up Gary Kemp and you know Simon Lebon and all of those guys, and then the twenty-four hour period that everyone saw. So all of that is quite heavily ingrained in my memory. But the only bits I can remember about live here are the bits, maybe a couple of bits backstage, and the eighteen minutes we were on stage. And that eighteen minutes is now compressed to one moment when when the audience clapped the Vienna drum beat. That's it. The rest of it. Not a the bad rest moment, of it has though. gone. Yeah, it's not a bad moment. Yeah. <laughs> Briefly to go back to Ultravox, I mean, you replaced John Fox, who had been their original lead singer. How much a part of the band did you feel? When I joined, I was well, I was the new kid on the block, uh, wasn't I? You know, I I had joined these three guys who had been doing what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. You know, me me with my idea of integrating synthesizers, you know, with traditional rock instrumentation. There's three guys that had been doing it for four years. You know, since working with Brian Eno, Brian Eno introduced them to the Mini Moog. And so they've got synthesizer on uh, their first album, you know, Ultravox, uh, you know, My Sex and, you know, whatever. So these guys knew a lot more about what I was trying to do than I did. Nice. And like anything, it's like, it's like joining a gang. You know, you don't walk in and start telling everybody else what to do. You, you're there to kind of learn. And these guys were infinitely more filled with the information than, than I was. So it was baby steps when, when I started with the band. A bit of bravado, because you had to hold your end up. To the extent that, you know, a lot of the lyrics were written by Warren the drummer, because nobody was allowed to write any, any of the lyrics when John was in the band. And I wasn't precious about that mm-hmm. at all. So quite a bit of the Vena album, Warren had actually done the lyrics. And that was that was great for me. It was a lovely way to kind of ease myself in. So, yeah, it was it was interesting. And people ask, you know, is it weird stepping into the shoes of John Fox? No, it wasn't, because the dynamic of the band changed just from the, from the sheer numbers. You know, we went from five people to four people. You know, I was the guitarist and the singer, as well as one of the songwriters. And it became a much more equal, you know, level playing field. You know, we all contributed to creating the, the music. And that, I think that was quite new for the band. I mean, it was huge. Vienna was such a huge hit. I mean, what impact did that have on you? Just literally, because that was a big, big hit, wasn't it? Oh, the, the impact uh, has got to be not a monetarily one, but uh, certainly an emotional one, yeah. because it, it elevated the band from playing, you know, small, sticky, carpeted clubs to... 
big sticky carpet of clubs. <laughs> we, we, um, you know, it's and that stuff you Moving cannot, you cannot do. Anybody who writes anything or creates anything, you're only responsible for what it is you create. Sure. It's not your job to go out and make this commercially successful. But it, the weird thing for us is the thing that became commercially successful was the least commercially successful thing we had. You know, it was four minutes long. It's it's meandering ballad with, you know, electronics and whatever. You look, you've got sunshine coming through. The yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not out. in London, I can tell you. <laughs> gloomy, right. gloomy as hell. I'm here. just going sh- to show off now and just... Just turn turn some of my other cameras on and see if that makes any difference for you. Oh, there you go. Is that better? <laughs> wow. We're not worried. Right, I've only put I've put that on for you, Mark. Because look at my lovely three three five. Right. So there we go. So that's sorry. The sun's beaming through my head. Just we're talking about live aid and God lit me up. <laughs> <laughs> that's brilliant. How long did the band last after you joined? How how long did Doctor Fox carry on for? Oh, it was. I joined in what seventy nine. We went through to I think Live Aid was the last gig we did together as a four piece, and then we dropped a three piece for an album and probably shouldn't have. So it went through to eighty six. So seven years. That's not a bad run. And then reunions. I've se- I've seen you play a couple of times at Hammersmith. Great show at Hammersmith. I mean, you've done so much since then. We don't have time to go into your your long solo career. Lots of hits there. But just take us up to like the present day, Midge. I mean, how have you found lockdown? I know you've you've done some events online. How are you finding it? What what is the future looking like? Well, dim right now. I have to say, the future. You know, I was in Australia, New Zealand when all of this kicked off. I was just kind of grateful to get back. The touring down there was kind of reasonably unscathed. We missed two shows, I think, but managed to get back because the information coming from the government was so vague and changing every two minutes that none of us knew whether we'd be allowed back into Heathrow or not. And everything on the diary, like everyone else in the industry, has gone. So all the summer festivals, the tour that was meant to be happening right now to follow on from the... The 1980 tour, which is the one that I did last year, has now been postponed to next year, possibly even the year after that. So I do what you do if you're reasonably creative. You have to kind of reinvent yourself a little bit. So hence the multi-camera system and the (laughs) tracking devices and stuff. I'm 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 just doing stuff from here so that I'm staying connected with people while still writing and and making new music. The, the, The reality is... The only thing that's weird is this is the most static I have been since I was 18. I'm normally away touring a lot. I'm normally off doing bits and pieces. And I've been at home for seven months. And that's the weird thing. The being at home part isn't much different because I'm usually in my little box here that I'm in, you know, writing or making music. So it hasn't really changed that much for me. But it's just, I think we all understand the devastation that's happened to the industry, not the pointy end that I'm at, but the the entire infrastructure mm. that makes the pointy end that I'm at work. So there's a, a you know a multi billion pound industry is 
is on its knees right now. And has been deemed non-essential, apparently, which is the other... Non-essential? So I've been retraining as a chef. (laughs) (laughs) You were on Celebrity MasterChef, so you've you've got some skills in that area. (laughs) Well, with my retraining, I'm planning to win it, Barney. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Good luck with that. Midge, it's been really lovely talking to you about your career. We're going to move on now. We've obviously talked a bit about guitars. We can see at least three guitars in the background in your Zoom window. Obviously, we have just lost one of the great rock guitar players in the last, what, 24, 36 hours, Eddie Van Halen, whose band Van Halen were absolutely massive with an incredible front man. We've got four pieces about Van Halen on the homepage, including a review of a very early show they did at the Whiskey, a go-go, and they... They sort of became the kings of, of L.A. at that point, just as when punk rock was sort of taken on. Van Halen kind of reinvented sort of heavy metal in a way. I mean, Midge, I don't suppose, you know, Van Halen were any, any sort of influence on, on you, but did you, did, what did you think of Eddie as a guitar player? Oh, phenomenal. Completely. He, he, he tore up the rule book, if there was such a thing. Invented the whole kind of, you know, hammer-on mad, twiddly-diddly, all that stuff that you hit the frets and it does stuff. I mean, I can't do it, but but I think that I think the thing that shocked everybody was the fact that he played on the Michael Jackson's Thriller album because I think at that point you didn't really have, you know, rock musicians working on what would be perceived as, you know, pop soul or, or pop R&B. It was a marriage made in heaven. You know, all of a sudden you're listening to, you know, Beat It, and then comes this killer guitar solo out of nowhere, and you think, wow. And that for someone like, you know, the soul R&B world to embrace something as rock and heavy metal, because that's what it was, as that was just amazing. Mm. I mean, mm. one, one question there is, where chronologically was that to run DMC doing Walk This Way? I'd imagine it's around very much the same time, and certainly in hip-hop, the idea of bolting metal guitar playing in, into hip-hop was a very current sort of thing. So I was wondering if there's some sort of mutual awareness of that sort of stuff going around between all of these guys. I think that came slightly after. Mm. What well, well, was slightly after, I think, yeah. it followed. I mean, I mean, the other thing about Van Halen is, in a way, they were the first Los Angeles metal band. Los Angeles wasn't a metal town, particularly. And they came up, and they were rapidly followed by the Motley Crews, etc. of this world. That They kind of blew L.A. open to being a kind of capital of metal, to some extent. Yeah. I mean, they also had, of course, they were signed by Warners. I think maybe Ronnie Bingenheimer took Mo Austin and Ted Templeman to see them at the Starwood, and mm-hmm. and they were signed literally overnight. And Templeman, who had produced like Montrose, who were fairly hard rock, took them in the studio. And that that first Van Halen album, which which also sort of dug out here, it still sounds <laughs> unbelievable. I mean, you know, it's so exciting. I played through about, I don't know, like six or seven of my favourite Van Halen tracks yesterday on, on, on earphones. And I just felt so 
alive and so invigorated. Mm-hmm. And Templeman's, Tem- what Templeman did with that band was incredible. I mean, those records sound fabulous, I think. He's a very, very good producer. I don't, I don't, I, I, I kind of admire Van Halen. I can't say I have a great fondness for them, even for their early stuff. But it was just a bit too sort of, in your face in a kind of curious kind of way. <laughs> just, just go back and listen to Running With The Devil. Just that <laughs> opening riff, it is quite incredible. And don't forget that this they, they were born around the same time as MTV. You know they sure. they used they used that incredibly well. They were they were kind of matey. They were your your pals, the guys you'd like to kind of hang out with, and that came across in all their videos. So you can't dismiss the fact that, as I was saying earlier, the house guys picking up on the electronics, mm-hmm. and then and then the R and B picking up on a bit of metal. So it, it seemed like the the barriers at that point had kind of fallen down and, and everything everything was fair game. Actually, that's a, that's a very interesting point, Mitch, because, in fact, around that very time, there was a lot of complaints that MTV wasn't playing black music, and it was yep. simply a fact. Maybe there's a calculation on part of Quincy Jones and Michael Jackson. We put some metal guitar in it. And he wasn't the only one. They also used Stevie Ray Vaughan, I believe, on a, couple, on a track on that album and so on. If we do that, maybe just having that guitar noise will force MTV to start showing our videos. I think you're probably right. I think there's a definite moment where Mm. someone's thought, you put this and this and this together, Mm. all of a sudden, not just, you know, socially will break down the kind of race barriers, but there's a massive audience of, you know, spotty, long-haired youths out there who wouldn't listen to R&B, but they would listen to Van Halen's on there, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, David Lee Roth was such such a great, front man because he always had his sort of tongue in his cheek a little bit you know he was a rock god but he but he was sort of taking the piss out of his own rock godhood i think and he was such a smart thing we've got a haven't we we've got a, a an audio interview coming up i hope fairly soon with david lee roth who is is probably one of the great interviewees oh, I think. I, i'm really looking forward to that because yeah. he just he's like, he gives great interview he really does yeah. Yeah. And I, I know a few people have met him and he said he's enormous fun i mean he doesn't he takes himself serious insofar as he really wants to do what he does very well. He loves earning the money. He loves the life it's all given him. But he doesn't take himself terribly seriously. And, and I, I think that's a wonderful quality. You know. Of course, I mean, he, he walked out on Van Halen to be yeah. replaced by ardent Trump supporter Sammy Hagar. Oh, God. <laughs> well, of course, you mentioned Montrose. And he was in Montrose. Was Sammy Hagar. Yes, yeah. I had a row in front of Montrose. Mr. Charles, I'd row with my sister. Um, <laughs> what, what you just thought... <laughs> we they, they were supporting status quo at Wembley Arena, or still called the Empire Pool back then. And my sister knew the guy who used to drive bands around for Warners in his me- green metal flake microbus. And so we were dragged along to Mr. Chow. And they were all, first time I ever saw anyone doing cocaine, they were passing plates of coke around the table. Which you don't sort say. Of fairly staggered me. <laughs> and I mean, I was like, you know, 16 or something. Anyway. Um, yeah, there's a good obituary of Eddie Van Halen in The Guardian. I think it's. I guess yesterday or yeah. today, Adam Sweeting, one of our writers, wrote it. And there's a, there's a fun line in it that I just picked out. They launched a world tour in 1979 on the back of the album Van Halen 2. And although by this time the so-called new wave had sent shockwaves through the music industry, Van Halen merely ignored it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
And I, but they did. And I think that's sort of true of them. They just sort of like, well, Van Halen is Van Halen, and they were going to be successful. They didn't give a fuck what else was going on. It was just like, this is, you know, this, as Mark, you were saying, like, they're very just straight ahead in your face. Which, I mean, I think if you if you buy into that, if you accept that, I think they are exciting. Like, I was listening back, like you, Barney, yesterday to to a bunch of that first album, and some of it is just like, you know, rip-roaring, yeah. good, fun guitar. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. You, you, you can't help but smile. I, I mean, it... it, it he did sort of accentuate, I don't think he intended to really, virtuosity. And the idea of virtuosity being around in rock and roll guitar playing for some time, I mean, particularly going back to John McLaughlin and yeah. the Mahavishnu Orchestra and so on and so forth. It actually had a terrible effect. It introduced the world to the wankers like Yingwe Malmsteen and the like, you know. Who <laughs> 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 just, you know, should be taken out and shot. And that, that you know, Yingwe. That's one of his legacies. In, the shredding, the, uh, the shredding legacy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I think he was pretty great. You just had five or six years of, of bands of bands not being virtuosos. Uh, it was the, the feather and the punk cap was that I can't play. So, so this was this was the backlash. Yes, it was. Yes. It was exactly. So, you're, Midge, you're saying you can't shred? Is that what I'm trying to? <laughs> you sure you don't want to just take one of those guitars down and 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 just do a bit of shred? A, a sort of bad shredding for us. Uh, listen, I'm, I'm better known for shredding cabbage than guitars. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. have to move on for the world of shredding and i just note in passing that also free on the homepage this week are goodbyes to three figures we've lost and that's johnny nash who was the american kind of soul singer who did so much to popularize reggae by covering bob marley's stir it up johnny nash who died at 80 this week matt davis who wrote in the ghetto which elvis had a huge hit for and I always remember, for some reason, I was really starting to listen to pop music when Baby Don't Get Hooked On Me was a big hit. So I associate Mac more with that. Do you have anything to say about Johnny Nash or Mac Davis? Any of you? <laughs> <laughs> okay, also Johnny Barney, Nash. Well, no, yeah. no, Johnny Nash is interesting. In, you mentioned the, the Marley connection. Is that actually... He was very responsible for Marley's eventual success. Mm. You know, Marley was, I believe, living in Scandinavia at the time, was writing yes. these songs, very curious. He was very marginalised. He got out of Jamaica. And Johnny Nash picked up on these songs. He did about three or four Marley songs, I believe, yeah. maybe more. Yeah. A pretty important figure in Bob Marley's career, I think. Talking of reggae, we also lost the legendary producer Bunny Lee, Bunny Striker Lee, who produced the original version of like Cherio Baby and lots of other things. And he'd been struggling with, um, with his health for some time. So that news just came in late last night. Moving on to what is not free on Rock's Back Pages this week <laughs> is Mark is going to tell us about the new audio interview. Yeah, it's uh, Stephen Daly interviewing Mariah Carey in March 1998. She had just released a new album called Butterfly, which is, in a sense, the first album that she could say she had any control over. Up to this point, 
her career had been almost entirely guided by a man who was in the process of becoming her ex-husband. Tommy Matona, is that correct? correct? You know, she doesn't talk about the fact that she's not with him anymore, though she does allude to it in a couple of times. For the first time, she's really sort of discovering a sense of herself, also kind of re-embracing her racial identity. In a way, she was presented as someone who was above race and pretty much white. That was the sort of... Yeah, the, who the could white, almost pass as white. I think you're the, right. The, yeah, the white yeah. soul diva. And, it's, and I, I, it's, 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 she talks a lot about that. And in fact, let's listen to the first clip. This is her talking about being mixed race. Because people just want you to be one thing, right? Right, and which I'm not in any way. I mean, racially, influence-wise, I mean, I'm not a one-dimensional person. And therefore, you know, a lot of, it's very difficult for a lot of people to understand that, especially people who aren't familiar with people who are of mixed race, because a lot of times people really don't look at me like that. And so they'll say offensive things in front of me, they'll just misunderstand the whole concept. Even if you say to them, oh, my father's black, and um, you know, my father's African-American and Venezuelan. He's not a black Venezuelan. That always gets misconstrued. Right. How, it, how does that work? His, I mean, I guess you could call him black Venezuelan, but it's not accurate. I mean, my father's mother is from, was from the South, a black American from the South. Right. My father's father um, was from Venezuela. Right. So he's half and half. Oh, right, right. And my mother's all Irish. Right. Irish-American. Yeah, no, I mean, it's very. She's she's very engaging. This interview, you know, she's 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 a she's a bright woman, much brighter than she's perceived to be, sort of broadly, you know, which I think is a problem a lot of women have in, in, in the music business. So this this album's clearly pretty important to her. She's also in the process of putting together this film at that point called All That Glitters, and I think it ended up being released as Glitter and was a hideous failure. But that, that you know, so she's talking about branching out. She's talking about doing the videos with her Diane Martel, who she has a, a lot of time for. But about the change in musical direction, let's have a listen to this, the, the change in musical direction clip. did was incorporate where I was going with the remixes onto the regular album. I don't think I made a drastic change. Right. I think people who say I made a drastic change are saying that for a reason. Maybe to deter, I don't know, the ones who want me to sing only Hero from buying the album, but there are ballads on the album that are in that vein. I just tried to, to taper the amount of production that went onto them. I tried to keep toning it down a little right, bit. Right, right. You know, but keeping the songs accessible. I mean, I'm not stupid. I'm not going to totally alienate half my audience, you know. There's a hero If you look inside your heart You don't have to be afraid of what you are 
we'll play a clip at the end where she's very interesting. You know, she grew up on Long Island. She talks about that in this interview as well. She's very funny she's about She's funny that. about yeah. Long, Long Island, <laughs> very, isn't she? <laughs> very funny. But, you know, she grew up listening to very early hip-hop. She talks about, like, the treacherous three and people like that. Really, really old-school hip-hop. And... This album should use Puff Daddy on it and a bunch of others. Talking about being in the studio with ODB as well. Absolutely. And yeah. so she's embracing something which is part of her roots. I mean, we look at her, I think she's her and Whitney Houston, the people who introduced the sort of style of mad oversoling that has become the de rigueur way of singing on Britain's Got Talent or whatever, the, the, the TV talent show type of women singers, which yeah. I think is a very unfortunate I mean, For me, it was interesting listening to this interview because I reviewed that Butterfly album for Rolling Stone and they said, will you review the new Mariah Carey album? And I remember I sort of thought, oh, God, do I have to? Because I just associated her with, <laughs> with sort of slush, like, like hero. And I, I wasn't really a big fan. And I remember you know, I just thought, Oh, you know, this is really good. It's really different. It's very R&B. And as you say, these, she's got these guests on it. And um, yeah, and I loved listening to her in this interview. She's yeah. really interesting. And I mean, we're talking about it because she's just released this rarities compilation. She's just published a book called The Meaning of Mariah Carey, which is such a great <laughs> title. There was a fascinating interview by Hadley Freeman in The Guardian a couple of days ago. So she's sort of you know, she's she's back, uh, albeit in lockdown. And one of the sort of great divas, isn't she? She's one of the, the sort of indisputable sort of big, big stars on Planet Pop. <laughs> and with one of the great Christmas singles as well, <laughs> said very consciously. Uh... <laughs> I, know, I know nothing about Christmas singles, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Yeah, she, so in the Hadley Freeman interview, she says, she says she wanted to make this. She's obsessed with Christmas because she had rather unhappy Christmases as a kid. And so, you know, that's a really important thing for her. I mean, I... I have a slight aversion to her Christmas records, but it's a big part of her life. It's the ultimate meta Christmas record. So her saying that she's very keen to make it because it has all the sort of musical tropes of, of Christmas, like the, the minor fourth chord and all that stuff, everything like that. It's, it's very carefully worked out. So it's, it makes sense that she is into Christmas in that sense. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever attempted to or sort of dreamed of writing a sort of big slushy ballad for someone like Mariah Carey that you could then essentially just retire on? No. <laughs> you know, you're not really a slushy ballad guy, are you? Well, you know, I can I can do slush as much as the next guy, but I'm I'm just I don't think I'd be very good at doing it to order. It's a bit like Painting by numbers. I mean, there are people out there. <laughs> slush by numbers. Slush by numbers. There are people out there who can who can churn this stuff out and think this one's for, you know, Beyonce and this one's for you know whoever. And I can't do that. I, I you know, I do my thing. And if somebody else covers it and makes a better job of it, great. But you know, but I, I, I don't <laughs> see it somehow. You know. It's all your covers. I noticed on Spotify the song that kind of has had the most plays is your cover of The Man Who Sold the World has had, like, 14 million plays. Is that accurate or what? Yeah, sadly. 
Yes, yes. <laughs> 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 yeah, uh, you know, out, out of all the things I've ever done. But there's a bizarre story about it. I mean, it's I did it back in 82. Someone approached me and said, look, we're making this dreadful movie. Well, they didn't say dreadful movie. It was a dreadful movie. They're making a movie called Party Party, which is like a, a, UK, a UK equivalent of Porky's. They wanted a soundtrack of various artists doing cover versions. And they said, look, we'll just give you some money and there's a studio and you go in and do anything you want. So I did a cover version of David Bowie's And I Sold the World. And it went out on this dreadful movie and was never seen or heard of again. And then a few years back when Ultravox got back together and we played Hammersmith, um, this guy Hideo Kojima, Jasper will know who this is, Hideo Kojima uh, came to see me, who's the director and creator of the Metal Gear Solid games. So he turned up with his entourage and it turns out to be a huge fan because he'd loved this song and he knew all the Ultravox stuff. He he said he'd get all these creative ideas listening to Ultravox. That's why the games are so miserable. Um, (laughs) And uh, and he he said, look, through his interpreter, he said he wanted to use my version of that song in the final episode of the game. It's like a five-part game. Okay. And... It crossed over into an audience that normally wouldn't be able to spell Midju or never mind know who it was, <laughs> and subsequently became massive. So weirdly, people find you because of things like that. So I'm glad to say a lot of a lot of these youngsters. Oh, have, that's a great loud. story. Yeah, that's it's great. It's fabulous. Yeah, that's a cool story. Yeah. What's new in the library? What's new in the library? Okay, starting off, I'm Philip Elwood, the San Francisco Examiner. 21st of December, 1966. He goes down to the old Fillmore Auditorium. This is before it moved and became the Fillmore West, the original Fillmore. To see Otis Redding, supported by the Grateful Dead. Which is a lineup to kind of make (laughs) your eyes water. Uh, 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 Interestingly enough, actually, that, that Elwood is primarily a jazz... Buff. He really likes black music, but he also became a passionate fan of the Grateful Dead. He's one of the few bands that he 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 really loved. Anyway, mm-hmm. he's t- about Otis is shouting singer Otis Redding and his band, an overwhelming rhythm and blues tidal wave roared through the Fillmore Auditorium last evening to begin a three night engagement. No one interested in what's happening to popular music can afford to miss Redding. He's too much. Redding has a giant voice to match his big, powerful body. He's his boast to create a sensational and senseless performance. Riding on top of the surging four-beat waves of sound from his blasting eight-piece band, Redding shouts, struts and lurches. He sends the audience reeling with the first vocal blow. From then on, it just wilts and collapses in roaring approval during each tune. Now, this is before Monterey. Exactly, before he you know? wowed the love crowd. Well, exactly. He's already wowing the love crowd. You yes. know? Love crowd part one. It's terrific. It's, it's, uh, I mean, I love... You know, when someone he's writing, he's a straight guy writing for a straight newspaper, and yep. he's just transported by what he's seeing. It's Great. Terrific. Enemy, nineteen sixty-seven. Keith Oldham meets both Pete Townsend later, when he eventually turns up far too late for the interview as Keith Moon in a, a coffee bar in Soho. Funnily enough, <laughs> <laughs> perish the thought. Sounds unlikely. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and you know, Pete's an articulate guy. You know, he's he's he's, he's as power pop as what we play. Interesting. Maybe this is the very first time that the term power pop has been employed. Just power pop is what we play. What the small faces used to play. The kind of fun pop the Beach Boys played in the days of fun, fun, fun. 
He also says, um, I believe pop music should be like the TV, something you can turn on or off and shouldn't disturb the mind. I wish you'd, I wish you'd, I wish you'd stuck to that. It <laughs> <laughs> would have put all of us out of our misery, really, has wouldn't he, it? Has he disturbed your mind a lot, Mark? <laughs> no, he's tried. <laughs> he's tried. <laughs> it's never quite worked. June 73, New York Sunday News. Lillian Roxon on the Jackson 5. What this piece is about is how she loves the way that the Jackson 5 have kind of brought back screaming, have brought back teeny bopper stuff, you know, because, you know, everything rock had become terribly serious, and she just loves it. She says, most of the screams are for Michael. That's not just because his fans are still at the screaming age, but because something about the electricity of this performance and even just his presence in a room makes a screamer out of almost anyone. Yeah. So there we go. Right, so right. a very big change of tune here. This is... a Ewan McCall, being interviewed by Carl Dallas and Maker in 75. Jackson 5, Ewan McCall. Um, <laughs> it's what we do. Seamless, we seamless do transitions here on the Rocks Back Pages podcast. That's just what we like. Uh, and, you know, he's such a stodgy old bastard, Ewan McCall. He really was. He was, he was the, pu- the purest, purest. So he says, if you ask me how does electric folk equate with the best of folk music that we have in tradition in terms of expertise, I'd have to say it doesn't equate very well. It's not very good. Elaine says, I wouldn't presume to tell anyone you shouldn't like electric folk. That would be a presumption. It's just that I don't like it. Right. Charming old fucker. Now, talking about both Kraftwerk and Caroline Kuhn, I posted that, Barney, you sourced for our, ourselves. From, the, from Ritz magazine. From great... Ritz magazine. <laughs> and I've got to say, it's an exceptionally good interview. Maybe one of the best Kraftwerk interviews oh, good. I've great. read. I mean, it's... Really interesting. She really understands them. This is 1977. It's still yeah. relatively early craft days, you know. Uh, and she gets very, very good responses. It's Florian Schneider, but mostly Ralph Hutter. Hutter. How do you pronounce Hutter. it? Hutter. Over to our German expert. Ralph Hutter. It has an umlaut over the U. So that, that, yes. Yeah. Okay. Hutter. There's a, yeah. <laughs> Jasper is I'm our half German. German so. Yeah, Jasper's half German. <laughs> um, so From, in fact, very near Dusseldorf. So. There you go. These are your hometown you boys. You know. <laughs> yeah, quite. Uh, Hutter says, We come from bourgeois families. Our families have a house, a garden, two cars, and we are educated in certain ways towards money. What he's saying is, you know, we aren't scuffling poor kids. You know, we're actually middle class bourgeois boys. But he says, In some respects, culturally speaking, we're like strangers in our own land. He talks about the mechanisms and the machines. He says, We work on the factory floor. We don't want to distance ourselves from our machines. We're like scientists, laboratory workers, plugging into the electronic system and transforming it into music. And then Florian Schneider says, and this is very interesting, because this has been talked about recently by various people. He says, we're trying to make people conscious of their environmental sounds. Our machines are creating the sounds of the environment, which is a very you know, very interesting point, really. Does that all make sense to you, Mitch? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I think I think you'll yeah. find that the, you know, Heaven 17 and... Human League and whatever from Sheffield said the same thing. They said they were replicating the sound of the steelworks. So, yeah, I, I can get that. I mean, the Autobahn is precisely that, isn't yeah. it? It's the sound of driving along a motorway. one Record Mirror, ABC's Martin Fry to Mark Cooper. And you know, Martin's a bit of a sort of ponce, really. You know, they're really they're, they're really into their manifesto phase of their career when it's all. I'll pass. I'll pass your regards on. <laughs> <laughs> Please 
please, please do. Um, says, uh, so, so, so Marty says, pop isn't precious, it's not classicism. Pop should be seen the same as other commodities. You're right, he's a pond. <laughs> <laughs> he's right. Yeah. Uh, remember, Mitch, I've got to read this stuff, you know, <laughs> so you don't have to. Um, we got an interview with Sandy Nelson, Bill Bailey, LA Weekly in 85. And I, I'm pleased we've got that because Sandy Nelson was a musician operating in the pre-music press era when musicians simply weren't interviewed. By the time he had these huge hit with, like, Let There Be Drums and these sorts of yeah. tracks. He was, he was a drummer. And by the time his career faded, you know, there's, there's very little material on him around. So he says, I don't drink anymore. I'm with that group that I won't mention by name, but they meet different places and can't remember each other's names and sit around drinking terrible coffee. But they're a wonderful bunch of people and they know who they are. <laughs> sounds, <laughs> sounds like my life. Yeah, well, well, you know, I, I, did, I did bring this quotation in for a reason. A couple more very quick things. Kathleen Moran interviewing Radiohead. Well, she's with Radiohead on the road in 95. They're talking about how what a burden Creep was to them as a single, as a you know, hit They really hate Creep, well, don't they? Well, they don't. They aren't well, over, Thom, Thom does. Thom, no, they, they aren't over fond of themselves. So Ed, o, Ed O'Brien says, there was a point where we seemed to be living out the same four and a half minutes of our lives over and over again. Johnny Greenwood says, doing acoustic versions of Creep for radio station jingles, being the Creep people. <laughs> Tommy York later on said, I hate these self pitying rock stars who run headlong into situations that damage them and then whine about it. And Catelyn has her own line because they're all behaving very well. She says, Trashing a hotel room isn't rock and roll, it's just a pain in the ass to some maid with kids to feed, which I think is actually a very, very good point. And I'm a Lastly, Natalie Imbruglia, interviewed by Robin Bresnart, medicine maker in 97. There's this talk about, you know, is she only successful because of her appearance and so on. So Robin Bresnart's clearly very keen on her indeed. He makes this very, very apparent throughout the article. But she says, I'm not saying my life is so hard because I'm not ugly. I could have what? Negative plastic surgery? So that's Natalie Imbruglia's last. And that's it. What, what, what have you guys got for us? Well, I'll hand over to Jasper in two seconds, but I wanted <laughs> to just mention, because it alludes to Van Halen's Hot for Teacher, a splendid rockademic piece by Gary Kenton, who's a real veteran of the music business, but became sort of veteran of music journalism, but became a kind of rockademic. And it's a, it's a piece that Gary contributed to some academic publication last year, a book called Teachers, Teaching and Media. Ha! <laughs> Don't get too excited, folks. The diseducation <laughs> of rock and roll. And it's just actually really quite an interesting exploration of the way education and teachers are sort of treated in, in pop music. So he sort of goes through all the obvious songs like School Is Out by Gary U.S. Bonds and School's Out by Alice Cooper and indeed Hot for Teacher. And he just kind of, he looks at this strange tension between the fact that, you know, we all know education is important for kind of young, particularly underprivileged kids. On the other hand, rock and roll is about rebelling against school and giving two fingers to to the institution of, of sort of schools and particularly high schools. So it's quite quite an interesting and amusing little piece. Something there is that, that it's one thing 
school kids themselves thinking about. It's another than having a prick like Roger Waters lecturing them how they should respond <laughs> yeah, to their school make, days. Yeah, he of course <laughs> mentions another brick in the wall. Is it? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Jasper, over to you, sir. A couple of things to mention, the first of which is a review of Ricky Martin at Earl's Court in 2000, and it's just a funny review. Lisa Vrego in The Times has to go see this and says, it was when Martin danced, however, that he really let his fans down. During the shuffling Spanish eyes, he flailed about like someone's embarrassing uncle at a Christmas party. <laughs> <laughs> so much for living la vida loca. <laughs> Next up, another wild shift is a very long 4,500 word essay in The Wire, Mark Sinker, talking about Lester Bangs' Reasonable Guide to Horrible Noise. And it's a very, very wirish essay. <laughs> <laughs> it takes in Yanis Anakis, Stockhausen, Pill, French social theorists, Jacques Attali and Jean Baudrillard and, and all sorts of stuff. And it's, it's very in-depth. Like, if that sounds like your kind of thing, definitely give it a read if it doesn't stay well clear. <laughs> but it's, it's really interesting. I mean, you know, all stuff like New Loud versus Old Loud versus New Quiet... Signal versus noise, originality <laughs> versus banality, all of that kind of good cultural studies and stuff. I know Mitch is going to read essay. this piece. The, the second this episode is finished recording. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> then there's uh, Laura Barton goes in 2014 to see a secret London gig put on by Jack White. And the reason I picked this out to talk about is because it's kind of creepy because it's a sort of theatre production that Jack White put on together with a company called Punch Drunk who do immersive theatre stuff. And the production is set in a faintly sinister medical research centre, which makes its narrative the outbreak of a contagious disease. So the original article on The Guardian is, you know, there's a selfie of Laura Barton in a face mask. And, it's, and it sort of felt very strange to open that up this week in the midst of everything that's been going on and sort of think, well, you know, they, they're all being made to use hand sanitizer and all this stuff, you know, six years ago. This is now well part of the collective conscience. I just thought that was weird sounds strange, like a sounds like a weird yeah. gig actually but an interesting one mm. and lastly a review of mid-year live at the forum in bar <laughs> I, <know. laughs> I hope it's a good one you've picked out there i, th I think <laughs> i read that one it says it's no john fox <laughs> <laughs> Is that what they're going to put on your tombstone? <laughs> Stephen Dalton in The Times. And Stephen Dalton seems a little bit disappointed that you're not sort of dressed up, that you're quite conservatively dressed, that the presentation is prosaic rather than new romantic. But... <laughs> How, how old is this guy? But he does, he does say, rather nice line, the song Vienna itself provided a suitably majestic climax. Its grandiose electro-orchestral construction and roaringly operatic vocal confirming its place in the new wave pantheon as the post-punk bohemian rhapsody. So oh, there, you, there go. you go. There you go, the post-punk bohemian rhapsody. Yeah, not bad. <laughs> I, I noticed that the stand first says, behind the new romantic mask, Midge remains an old romantic at heart. Oh, dear me. See, right. <laughs> At his best. See, I obviously obviously went wrong because I didn't wear a leotard like Freddie Mercury. That's that's it. So. <laughs> and, you know, no John Fox. So. <laughs> and that's you. Put, that must have been one of the last gigs you did because February, and it's in your hometown of or your adopted hometown of Bath. Um, is that literally one of the last live gigs you? Played before we, yeah, yeah, no, just, you were that, in that Australia. Was, that you? was just before we went to Australia and New Zealand. But okay. Yeah, it was one of okay. the last ones in the UK. Yeah, 
But so you must still enjoy playing live, then. You're doing still doing lots of. Gigs Do you know what? And... It's, it's like anything. I, I I I don't underestimate an audience. I think they can tell when you're you're walking your way through something. You know, you're just blocking it out. You know, I've done this for as long as I can remember, and I still absolutely love the whole process. Every every element of it, even the even the boring bits are great. You know, so. Yeah, um, you know, I, I, people. <laughs> when you get a certain age, the question that kind of pops up isn't, you know, what are your favourite colour socks and stuff that you used to usually get. It's, you know, what are you thinking of retiring? And and I think, well, surely you retire from something you don't like to do something you do like. And I can't mm. find anything better than this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. great, nice, great. Well, I've seen you two or three times over recent years i've really admired the fact you really own the stage when you're watching you whether it's with ultravox over on stage you feel like you're in safe hands you know there's never kind of moment like is, is this guy in, you're really in charge and it's actually really impressive so more power to you and your live performances but maybe you might think about dressing up kind of a bit more like steve strange on your next <laughs> tour <laughs> it didn't do him any good <laughs> oh bless! Yeah, it's lovely, a sad story, lovely, isn't it? It's dreadful. I mean, I'd, it's it, isn't it irony at its utmost. I mean, he, he lived in that nightclub world, you know, got involved in all the stuff that that you get involved with in that world, and then he died of natural causes. So it's absolute irony. Yeah, yeah. We, it's just bizarre. Just very, very sure. bizarre. Yeah. Oh, well, look, we've come to the end i think of our road today and uh, it's, it's just been a, a delight speaking with you midge thank you so much for for joining us and it only remains for mark to talk us out with the third and final clip from our mariah carey audio interview so we'll say toodle pip toodle pip yeah this this is mariah talking about you know her sort of how hip-hop has been a huge part of her roots thanks, so, thanks midge well wow. bye everybody thank you thanks. very much Thanks, guys. It's been lovely being an old white guy. (laughs) (laughs) You know, growing up with the first rap records and watching the evolution, you know, and, like, loving, like, Eric B and Rakim and, like, you know... Dougie Fresh, Slick Rick, and like all the records that were really like staples of my, you know, high school, junior high school years. Like it, it's not a stretch for me. It doesn't seem like a stretch for me because that was the music I grew up listening to. Right, right. You know, but to those guys, it was so drastic. Right. And I, I guess I didn't look at it as drastic because I was listening to ODB, you know, Oh Baby, I Like It Raw every day on the radio. I was right, like, right. when I'm on the remix. <laughs> and Puffy was very hot, you know, just on the remix side of things, on the production side of things at that point. He wasn't, you know, Puff Daddy the rapper right, at that right. point. So I was really, really, I really wanted to work with Puffy do the remix. And I, when I met with him, at first he was like, oh, no, I don't mess with that pop shit, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then... When I met with him and he heard the track and he was like, you know, he got it where right. I was going, what I wanted to do. He's like, I can re-loop it. And he really did re-loop it. And I really think what he brought to that record took it to another level. Ladies and gentlemen, introducing the old, dirty, doggy. Yeah. Here we go now. <laughs> Me and Mariah go back like babies were pacifiers. That was Mariah Carey in conversation with Stephen Daly in 1998, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. 
Many thanks to special guest Midge Yeur. Check out his backstage lockdown club at patreon.com forward slash Midge Yeur and the new 40th anniversary version of Vienna by Ultravox. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.